1: There was kind of this, this, this vast, loyalist community in the South that was waiting to rise up if the British would open up a, a theater in the South.
0: That's Andrew Waters, and he's got a new article on the Battle of Cowpens, the aftermath, and the war in the Carolinas. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Henry Holt and Company, publishers of the new book, The British Are Coming, The War for America, Lexington to Princeton, by Rick Atkinson. Available now. Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, our guest is longtime Journal of the American Revolution contributor, Andrew Waters. Andrew has written a number of articles for us here at the Journal, with a special emphasis on the American Revolution in the Carolinas. Today we'll talk about Charles Cornwallis and Daniel Morgan, two of the biggest names of the war, and the aftermath of that fateful battle that has proven to be so important to winning the war for the Patriot cause. One of the things that we get into in the interview uh, is, why is there exactly a War in the South. And Andrew does a really good job of laying that out very plainly and very succinctly, despite the fact, as he mentions, that you could write several books on the topic. And people have. Hopefully you've read some of them. But that's an idea I want to touch on today briefly on our show. The idea of why the war moves south and what that looks like. And this is how I want you to sort of think about it the American Revolution. We have a real issue of Americanitis, we might be able to say, Uh, a lot of times here in the United States when we think about the American Revolution. And it's really easy to do that. You root for a side. You hope uh, for independence. After all, if George Washington fails, we all have different passports. Uh, But when you study the war long enough, and you really can separate yourself from those sort of inherent biases that you have, You start to view the war from both perspectives and you see a very telling story emerge. It's not difficult to see why the British struggle so early. From the imperial viewpoint, for the British side, it's well understood that every minute, every second, every day that the revolution continues is one minute, second or day too long. So the British will always have this urgent desire to end the war fast using all means necessary diplomatic and military as we've seen throughout the length of the war but they never really hone in on a strategy that works in 1775 they view the war as a massachusetts new england problem and they occupy boston and that doesn't end the war in 1776 they invade new york city with a massive fleet They hope to seek and destroy George Washington's army, and therefore take away the active military arm of the Revolution. They hope that will end the war, Well, Washington escapes time and time again. In 76, it continues. In 77, they completely reboot the war for a third time, and this time invade from Canada, hoping to control the Hudson River and sever New England from the rest of the colonies. Hopefully, that ends the war, Well, the Saratoga Campaign doesn't end the war either. So what I'm trying to say is, by 1778, every time winter comes around, the British find themselves struggling to stop this rebellion. And time and time again, to use modern parlance, they reboot the war in an entirely new phase. Many times you get an entirely new commander as well. Not an effective way to combat this sort of thing, but let's face it. Rebellions are infectious. So, by the time we get to 1778, the British will move the war south. They believe there's a great deal of loyalist support there, and they're correct. The American South, the Carolinas and Georgia, and to a degree Virginia, relied almost entirely on the British for their income. They grew a, an incredible wealth of crops and goods. And they sold and bought from the British. Uh, As we've mentioned in previous episodes, Georgia doesn't even send uh, representatives to the First Continental Congress. Uh, It's a much more complicated issue than we tend to make it. So the Southern strategy, the war in the South, is what the British hope to turn this whole thing around. And for a while, it seems like it may work. The victory at Charleston, the British will see will be one of the single largest victories they have in the entire war. Uh, The number of American prisoners they get off the battlefield is enormous. But of course, they don't win the war. The particulars of why are where people like Andrew Waters really come in uh, with their strength. Andrew Waters knows the Carolinas. He knows the backcountry. He knows all of the pitfalls and traps and problems that gave Charles Cornwallis a lot of major problems uh, in his campaign. So we'll get into all those issues today. We'll talk about the Battle of Cowpens, and more importantly for Andrew's article, its aftermath. And we'll talk about why that still matters in the greater course of the war. Because it's in these small events, uh, that is the the aftermath after the big battles that we see some of the most important materials. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Andrew Waters. Andrew Waters, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you, Brady. I appreciate the
0: the opportunity. Tell us a little bit about your background.
1: Yeah, so I tell people that I'm a proud English major. I majored in English literature in college and actually started off um, my career in the publishing and editing field. Um, Kind of in my early 30s, I shifted careers, and, and for the last decade and a half, I've been working in um, land conservation here in the Carolinas. So, uh, oddly enough, um, both of those uh, professional backgrounds have kind of led me to an interest in Revolutionary
0: War history. What first drew your interest into this topic?
1: Yeah, so uh, I moved to Spartanburg, South Carolina back in 2013. Um, I'd been a pretty much a lifelong North Carolina resident all my life. Um, but really, I have to admit, I, I really was not aware of the American Revolution activity that took place in this part of South Carolina, and when I moved here, Um, It was a big revelation to me um, that all of this um, important activity uh, during the war occurred pretty much in in the backyard here where I live. So um, shortly after I moved to Spartanburg, I read uh, the John Buchanan book, Road to Guilford Courthouse, and that really ignited my interest in the Southern Campaign and the American Revolution and the things that, that, that happened here in the Carolinas during the war. Um, and I've just, over the past several years, I've, I've just gotten more and more interested in it um, Done quite a bit of reading in on the American Revolution, on the Southern Campaign, and just decided to kind of match that that interest I'd always had in writing and um, editing and, and literature with this new interest in um, the American Revolution. And about two two and a half years ago, started doing some writing on the American Revolution, writing some articles. Um, you know, discovered the Journal of the American Revolution site and started submitting to the site. And, um, you know, here we are. Uh, This article um, really grew out of an an interest in the Calpins um, battle, the campaign that both led up to Calpins and um, what happened after the battle. I was looking for something that might be of interest to the JAR readers, and um, of course, you know, there's quite a bit on the Battle of Calpens out there, but I really didn't see much out there, at at least written recently, about what happened after the battle. and, you know, as I said earlier, I, I, I do land conservation. That's my, my job. That's my real life. Um, and the, the Broad River and the Catawba River, which play important roles in this story, um, are two areas where I've worked during my career doing land conservation so that uh, it was kind of that interest kind of thinking about the rivers in this vicinity and the role they played in the story um, kind of along with just the general interest in cow pens that I um, deal with on a day-to-day basis living here in the upstate of South Carolina that inspired um, the the topic of this story.
0: For 1775, 1776, and 1777. Uh, we see most of the fighting during the American Revolution in the Northeast: Boston, uh, New York, Philadelphia, and so on. So, Andrew, if you could uh, kind of fill us in on or catch us up as to why the war moves to the Southern colonies in 1778.
1: Yeah, well, I think you know that's that's a question that you could spend your whole life. Researching and and still not fully understand, but I'll give it I'll give it a shot. Um, you know I think the short answer is that the war had essentially fallen into a stalemate in the Northeast. Um, the the British uh, were looking for some uh, strategic advantage, and at the same time they were getting a lot of Um, feedback from um, some of the loyalists who were here in the uh, American colonies some of the loyalists who had ended up in um, London and England um, that there was kind of this 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 vast um, loyalist community in the South um, that was waiting to rise up if the British would open up a, a theater in the South. And um, I don't think that was the only reason um, that they decided to uh, try another um, invasion of Charleston um, and move into South Carolina. But I think it was, a, it was a part of the reason. I think there were some other reasons, um, and in a geopolitical context. Um, they really go beyond the scope of this story, but obviously there was a renewed conflict with France. Um, there were some concerns about some of their colonies uh, in, the, in the West Indies. Um, and for a variety of reasons, it just kind of made sense to um, open up a theater in the South They had successfully captured Savannah at the end of uh, 1778, and they, I think Henry Clinton was willing or was. Uh, open to another uh, chance at Charleston because he had failed there in 1776. And I do think there was some degree of um, kind of uh, revenge for him that he, he wanted another opportunity uh, to take Charleston. Um, the the English ministry in back in London was looking for a way to kind of reignite the war effort. And um they, were willing to believe that uh, a a Southern campaign might be more favorable to them than the conditions um, they were experiencing in the North. So, you know, all of those forces and probably more kind of came together, and um, that was why Clinton and Cornwallis moved south in spring of 1780 and captured Charleston and then moved into the um, interior of South Carolina, and that that's kind of gets us to where, uh, close to where my article starts at the end of Cowpens.
0: You make the decision at the beginning of your article to start with the Battle of Cowpens. Why do you think that was an important battle to start?
1: Yeah, well, for one thing, I liked, uh, I liked the idea of Beginning the article at the end of Cowpens because I feel like it kind of um, uh, it it goes against your expectations. You know, most most articles you would read would would end with the battle at Cowpens. So I like that. I like from a kind of a, a literary perspective, a, a narrative technique. I like the idea of opening the article in the aftermath. The, um, the battle itself um, was very uh, strategically important um, for the, the Southern campaign. Green had just recently arrived um, to take over the, the Southern army from Horatio Gates. Um, I think he realized right away that he was both outmanned and probably outclassed by the British Army. He was pretty horrified um, at the condition of the army that he had. Uh, inherited from Gates. And he he did a very interesting thing. Um, He decided to uh, send a detachment under General Morgan um, to the west uh, here, right around Spartanburg, South Carolina, just a few miles away uh, from where I am sitting and talking to you today. Um, and uh, this had an effect on Cornwallis. Um, there was a um, an action. You know, Cornwallis felt that uh, Morgan was threatening his outpost at 96. He sent a detachment under Bannister Tarleton um, to uh, kind of... Um, protect 96 and push Morgan out of uh, this part of the Carolinas. Um, at the same time, he was planning uh, to uh, a joint action with Tarleton to actually move against Morgan in tandem, and that's part of the story that 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 goes into the uh, the cowpens campaign. That's not really addressed here, uh, but. There were they were. At, and Cornwallis were actually planning to coordinate an attack on Morgan. And um, you know, it depends on whose account you believe or, or uh, who um, you know the who is telling the story. But essentially, Tarleton decided to attack Morgan without waiting for Cornwallis. To join him. Uh, And that kind of gets into the story uh, that I tell in this article. Um, I think that um, Cornwallis, at some psychological level, felt betrayed by Tarleton, um, and that um, kind of led to some of these feelings of of psychological isolation that I talk about in the article. Um, But Anyway, as probably a lot of our listeners know, um, Tarleton still had a superior force to Morgan, but Morgan um, was the master strategist, um, and he was able to effectively use his militia and volunteer troops in a way that kind of took advantage of um, Carleton's, um kind of proclivities, his his tendency to just charge into the attack, uh, and and Morgan was able to use his militia and um, kind of a, a, a skirmishing capacity, uh, a reserve capacity, and this this was a very effective um, tactic against. And, you know, there's some some other things Morgan did on the field of battle, but essentially, you know, as I say in the story, Morgan was able to achieve this complete victory over Tarleton at Cowpens, and it really screwed up the British plans. They were planning to move into North Carolina to kind of um, destroy Morgan to destroy Green, to subjugate North Carolina, to move into Virginia, um, to kind of begin campaigning in the Chesapeake, and this was their plan. They were hoping to draw George Washington down from the Northeast and and lure him into this decisive action in, in the Chesapeake area, uh, but essentially... Because Calpens ruined those plans. Because the Calpens was such uh, a complete defeat for the British, they were never able to implement those plans um, the way they wanted to.
0: Could you talk about Daniel Morgan's role in the war to this point? What was he asked to do after Calpens?
1: Well, I think um, his primary objective was. protect the prisoners that he'd taken there. He had taken uh, about 800 prisoners at uh, Calpins. He knew that um, Cornwallis would be anxious to get those prisoners back. He knew that those prisoners had pretty substantial strategic value that they could be um, exchanged for some of the uh, American prisoners that were taken in the fall of Charleston and at the defeat at camden um, so so that was his primary objective. I think his secondary objective was um, not you know not not meeting uh, Cornwallis again in battle. He knew that uh he was not strong enough um to to meet uh what the what had um the remainder of Cornwallis's army which was still substantially larger than the force Morgan had with him um so he was trying to get back and reunite the force that he had which was really just a few hundred men at that point with the main army of green um so that cornwallis didn't catch him from
0: behind why was cornwallis pursuing morgan after this battle and could you talk about some of the challenges that he faced in the backcountry of the carolinas
1: yeah i think that's real that kind of ended up being the the focus of the article and um Don, uh, the editor, uh, Don, my editor at Journal of American Revolution, really helped me kind of get a get a handle on this issue. Um, so, uh, you know, the British Army was a, a European army. Um, they 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 traveled pretty heavy. Uh, they had um, they required quite a bit of baggage um, to support um the troops um, there were a fair amount of camp followers that moved with the army and were kind of part of the regular army life um, uh, the the troops themselves carried a fair amount of equipment um, and and provisions um, so you know th- this was an army that was kind of used to um, European conditions, they were used to roads, they were used to more open kind of agricultural areas. And when they got to the American South, um, essentially they were uh, put into a an uncultivated wilderness um, where there were very few bridges, um, the road systems that existed were confusing, um, they mostly were were only known to the locals that used them. Um, they were dirt roads. They would turn to mud and, and wet conditions. Um, and this was a big adjustment for the British Army, I think. They, they really struggled um, trying to adapt um, to these conditions. Um, you know, they, they did have some cavalry with them um, in the South, but it was not a very um, mobile force. And again, Um, After he lost uh, a lot of those light forces at Calpens, it was even kind of more burdened by um, baggage and kind of this traditional mode of of warfare. Um, So as he set off in pursuit of Morgan, a to try to recapture these prisoners and B um, to try to um, catch Morgan before he could reunite with Green. Um, you know, he he just couldn't get going. He was he could not um, get this army to move, um, and, and he realized this pretty quickly that. Um, that there was no way he was going to catch Morgan, um, kind of burden the way he was. So he made a couple of attempts um, to really um, kind of convert the troops that he had into light infantry. Uh, I talk about it in the article. Um, you know, he'd, he'd marched for about three days and um, was frustrated and, and realized that he wasn't going to be able to catch Morgan he He got rid of some of his baggage, he got rid of some of his wagons um, hoping that that would that would help increase the mode of the of the um travel, but it really um didn't help very much so he got up to this place called Ramzoor's mill, um, which was kind of a well known crossroads in the Carolinas um kind of in southwestern North Carolina. And um Morgan had by that time had escaped across the Catawba River. Um and um Cornwallis was was frustrated. He was angry. He he knew um that he had to do something if he was going to 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 catch Morgan, if he was going to be able to, to destroy Green he had to do something, um, and for him, I, it was it, it was as much of a, a, a logistical, a psychological issue as a logistical issue. I think he realized that he he needed to change both the mindset of his troops and, to a certain degree, his own mindset. Um, so what he did was, at Ramsor's Mill, he ordered a... Um, a giant bonfire, and uh, most of the wagons, most of the baggage that they still had with them, he ordered put into this fire, and kind of to um, inspire his troops, but I talk about this in the article. I think, in my opinion, I think he also did this to kind of strengthen his own resolve, to kind of um, inspire himself he was the first one to put his baggage his equipment into this fire, and I talk about it in the article. Um, this was received very favorably um, by the troops um, the 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 army um, followed his example, and you know i you can only imagine what this this scene must have been like with with this army kind of out in the wilds of uh, the Carolina frontier, um, really uh, in unknown territory, um, kind of facing um, uh, conditions that that they had never faced before, um, kind of marching into North Carolina with, um, you know, over 2,000 men. But think about that. Just over 2,000 men to conquer a whole state. Um, and so there they were at this, at this place called Ramser's Mill out in the middle of nowhere in western North Carolina, and they were burning pretty much all of their supplies and all of their equipment, and they were, they were getting ready to move forward into the unknown to try to get Morgan to try to deliver a decisive blow against Green and uh, it, and this fire kind of symbolized um, everything that they uh, were getting ready to undertake and everything that they – all of the hardships and, and, and turmoil that they had were leaving behind them was all symbolized in this great bonfire that they set at Ramser's Mill. So, you know, when I, read, when I was doing my research for the article and had actually read about um, some of this um, – some of these activities before, really, that was kind of the inspiration for the whole article. I really wanted to kind of set the stage for that fire and um, kind of think about or write about uh, what that fire symbolized for the British Army.
0: Could you give us a sort of a judgment of how the march plays out for Cornwallis?
1: Um, Not too well. (laughs) um so he he had set this giant fire um he was all fired up his men were you know uh all all ready Uh, and then it started to rain um and I, i forget exactly i think it rained four or five days uh the catawba river floods um, they're not able to push forward after Morgan. They kind of, you know, you know how it is when you get all fired up for something, and then, you know, it, it rains or it snows, and you can't do what you wanted to do, and it kind of, kind of uh, sucks the wind out of your sails. So, um, by that time, uh, Green. Had arrived on uh, the Catawba. He was not with his army. He was essentially he he was traveling with a small entourage of about three soldiers. But but during all this, Morgan's health had really been failing him. He um, he he suffered from sciatica, which is a, a nerve condition in his back, or at least that's what we. What we believe that he was suffering from um, and it, it had been troubling him throughout this campaign even before cowpens um, but you know he could kind of he could kind of push that that pain out of his mind when he needed to when he when he was going into battle or when he was trying to lead his men but but as this you know as they kind of um, um, set up on the other side of the pen of the Catawba River and we're, we're waiting for Green to join him and we're waiting for some of the militia uh, to to come to them and, and hopefully put up a defense uh, at the Catawba River these health conditions just kind of got um, worse and worse um, so you know Morgan really kind of um, you know exits stage left at this point in the story he did go with the troops as they continued their retreat to um, to Salisbury and then across the Adkin and on to Guilford courthouse but his health was really deteriorating at this point he um, he told Green that he wanted to leave the Army um, that he didn't feel like he could uh, perform his duties in his current condition, Green really tried to stop him or convince him to stay, um, but ultimately Morgan was determined um, his his health was just so bad that he 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 realized he couldn't go on so so you know that's why we, in in history you know the kind of the the um, the everyday um, reader of of american Revolutionary War history doesn't hear much about Morgan after Calpens, um because he uh, shortly thereafter he he'd left uh, left green's army but you know in my mind, this is really kind of the last great chapter of General Morgan at least as far as um, his his career in the Continental Army because he had essentially he had been able to to uh, trick Cornwallis into believing that he was moving north up into um, the mountains of North Carolina. So he, he had fooled Cornwallis. When Cornwallis finally realized um, that he'd been tricked and, and got on the right track and started moving towards Ramsor's Mill, um, Morgan was able to get his prisoners and his men over the Catawba River. He was able to get the prisoners moved up into Virginia where they were safe and where they could um, eventually be used um, for an exchange. And he was able to get um, this flying army, um, the, these um, mostly these Maryland and Delaware um, continentals um, with whom he had fought at Cowpens kind of safely across the Catawba River and eventually get them reunited with Nathaniel Green. Um, so even though we don't really hear that part of Daniel Morgan's story, um, I think that, um, you know, it, it was it was. An important corollary to what he had done at Cowpens was kind of this this last retreat and this escape from Cornwallis um, over the Broad and over the Catawba.
0: Andrew Waters, thank you for joining us. Thank you. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia.